Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. This reminds me of uh, Stephen Robinson's book. Just the title was Believing Christ. His thesis, as I recall, was, well, a lot of us believe in Christ, but we don't believe him. When he says he can change us and cleanse us and redeem us, there's a verse that I, for years, went right past it because I knew what Alma and Amulek were doing with the Zoramites. They were showing them after they heard the prayer on the Ramiumptum, Thou hast made it known unto us, there will be no Christ. They started quoting all these verses that said, no, God will have a son. And so when I read Alma 33, 16, all those times, it was, Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son. And I always read it in that context. See, he's showing them that God has a son, but I missed the powerful message in there. How do you make the Lord angry? Thou art angry, O Lord, with his people, because they will not understand thy mercies. And what is the difference between will not and cannot? It's a choice. They refuse to understand how merciful he is. They will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son. And that verse opened up to me. People refuse to understand his mercies. Despite all the evidence he shows them. Yeah, and so that just is a good one to stick in the margin there with verse 11. How long will it be ere they believe me? Notice he doesn't say believe in me. Believe being Christ. Lehi speaks to Jacob in 2 Nephi 2, very beginning of his, of his message to him. He says, you are redeemed because of the righteousness of your Redeemer. He doesn't say because of your righteousness. He says, because your Redeemer is this good. John, you brought up Believing Christ by Stephen Robinson. I actually brought a little of that talk to share today. If you won't mind, I'm going to give you guys two paragraphs from it. This is the BYU devotional, Believing Christ, but also became part of the book. To have faith in Jesus Christ is not merely to believe that he is who he says he is, to believe in Christ. Sometimes to have faith in Christ is also to believe Christ. Both as a bishop and as a teacher in the church, I have learned there are many that believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, but that he cannot save them. They believe in his identity, but not in his power to cleanse and purify and to save them. To have faith in his identity is only half the process. To have faith in his ability in his power to cleanse and to save, that is the other half. We must not only believe in Christ, we must believe Christ when he says, I can cleanse you and make you celestial. Spiritually, there are some of us who are petrified by the questions, am I celestial? Am I going to make it? Was I good enough today? We're so terrified of whether we're going to live or die or whether we've made it to the kingdom or not that we cannot make any progress. It's at those times when the Savior grabs us throws his arms around us and says, I've got you. I love you. I'm not going to let you die. Now relax and trust me. We can relax and trust him and believe him as well as believe in him. Then together we can begin to learn to live the gospel. He puts his arms around us and we begin to make progress. That's now like about 30 years old. And my feeling is we need it now more than ever. It's so hard to believe Christ. And I just want your audience, and I love that you have so many people that listen to you that maybe we can reach with this message because I just want people to know, I don't care what's wrong with you. Uh, And we all have something wrong with us and we all focus on all the things wrong with us and all the things we don't do and all the things we do wrong and whatever. I don't care what's wrong with you. It's not more than Christ can fix. It's not beyond his saving and redeeming power. All you have to do 
is keep coming back to him. However many times you fall, you just have to keep coming back. He knows you're going to fall. He knows you're going to mess up. He knows you're going to murmur, whatever else. It's part of the plan. That's why God sent his son. Just keep coming back to him because you are not more than what he can fix. He, If he can deliver Israel from the Egyptians, if he can create this world, he can exalt you. And I testify that he can exalt you. He's already in the process of exalting you. He has been since you were born, knowing full well the mistakes you would make. Have we said this clear enough, you guys? I think this may be the most important thing we've said. After Stephen Robinson wrote Believing Christ, he wrote another book called Following Christ. And in that book, it was like, okay, we've come to Christ, now what do we do? And there was a line in there, which I love to share with my students, where he said, really, the question is not, am I going to make it? The question is, do I want to stay? We are in a covenant with Christ. He is very good at keeping his covenants, and he is mighty to save. And that changes the question. I love what you said, Carrie. We think our sins can overpower the atonement. Well, we're in a covenant with Christ, and he invites us back every single week to renew that. And so the question isn't, am I going to make it? It's, do I want to stay? We are in the kingdom of God because we're in the kingdom of God on earth. And uh, he's mighty to say, this is a great discussion, and I've got lots of footnotes now next to verse 11. I think that our answer is, again, in the story. So we've been sometimes saying, oh, silly Israelites, they complain so quickly (laughs) and so on. So I'll just tell you this. I can remember one time taking my family across the border from Israel to Egypt, and it was a 110-degree day, and we were standing out on this pavement, and, and my thought was, wow. I am never going to wonder why Israel murmured again. (laughs) I get it. If I were there, I would be murmuring. I have no doubt. I'm not a murmuring kind of guy. I'm sure I would be murmuring. So I don't want to point the finger too much at them, but we do want to point out the good things. However many times they messed up, they kept coming back. They're a little bit silly in this case because God says, okay, you're going to go 40 years. And they say, okay, never mind. We'll go in right now. And God says, no, I, I, I said, you're going to now take 40 years. And they say, no, we're going in and we're going to fight these guys. Like, okay, but I'm not helping you, right? Because he's got a new plan. So they're a little bit silly about it, but they keep coming back. That's the story of the Old Testament, that however many times Israel messes up, they keep coming back and God is always there to accept them back. So uh, that, I believe, is another way of seeing what you were saying, John. Are you going to follow him? Are you going to stay? I don't care how many times you fall. That's never the question. The question is, how many times do you get back up and try again? I don't care how good you are at sinning. You're not good enough to mess up. I don't care how good you are at being a ding-dong. You're not good enough to mess up to the point where God's not going to be able to fix this. The question is, are you going to keep coming back? This is another thing that's worth bringing up, I think. One of Satan's favorite lies is that, it's, let's say that you promised God, you repented, and you said, I'm not going to do this particular thing anymore, right? Maybe it's murmuring, but whatever it is, because the Israelites murmured like 110 times in this story. But whatever it is, you promise God you're not going to do it anymore, and you maybe even go like five years without doing it, and then you do it again. And you know you need to repent and come to God in prayer. But as you're doing it, Satan has a lie he loves to tell you. And he says, God doesn't want to hear from you anymore. You've told him so many times you wouldn't do this anymore, and you did it again. God doesn't want to hear from you anymore. And that is a bold-faced lie. Because what God says is, as often as my people repent, will I forgive them of their sins. When you think about that, that's a high percentage. 
right? That is 100% of the time that you repent, God will take you back. 100% of the time that you're a ding dongy and you forget to do this or you don't do what you should or whatever else, God will bring you back. So the question is, will you be like the house of Israel? And it doesn't matter how punished you are, how scattered you are, how often you've done this, how many times you've messed up, will you just keep coming back and let God gather you back to him? That's the question for us. That verse you quoted, as oft as my people repent, I think that's Mosiah 2630, isn't it? In the Book of Mormon. And it's like Alma's got to set up his first church membership council ever. And the Lord's telling him, here's what I do. I forget. Look at verse 18, back in Numbers 14. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. <laughs> now, the next part of it talks about the justice area, but this first part I underlined. He's long-suffering and of great mercy. And that doesn't sound like an angry God of the Old Testament, the way some people characterize him. Yeah, go on to verse 19. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Right? right? We've messed up plenty of times already, and you've forgiven us. Can you keep doing it? And the answer is yes. As we've had this discussion about believing Christ, I remember working this out in my own mind years ago, and and I read the book of Romans, uh, and it was chapter three, where Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And here I was thinking, well, I'm not celestial material. I just don't know if if I'm going to make it. And it was almost a check on my pride as if Paul was saying to me, do you think you're some sort of special sinner that you somehow, <laughs> your sins fall outside of the atonement of Christ, fall outside of his power. And I thought, well, no, I just feel like, what, are you the worst? You're the vilest of all sinners? Is that what you think? And it really was a check on my pride to say, you know what? I need to be submissive enough to realize I'm not a special sinner, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the Savior will redeem me as he will redeem all those who have sinned. I hope our listeners are feeling the weight lifted off their shoulders and onto the Lord's, because that's what he wants. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden. Give this burden to me. I am going to save you. You are not going to save you. I am going to save you. Trust me. Do you know what this reminds me of? It's one of my favorite verses in all of the Doctrine and Covenants last year. I think it's section 46. I want to say verse 15, that uh, the Lord suits his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. I mean, Satan has made it really easy to sin these days. Some of the worst things the world has to offer are easy to bring into our homes and our smartphones and everything else. But God knows that. And the Lord suits his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. The 2022 conditions were different than the ones I had as a teenager in the, the 80s. But the Lord knows that. He knows exactly the world he sent us to. He knows exactly the world he sent our teenagers to, and his mercies know that, and they're suited to that. And it gives me a lot of hope and comfort. That's beautiful. And, and I like what you were saying, Hank. I think we all need to realize that we're all average garden variety sinners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't think you're so special. Uh, you're just like everyone else, and Christ got this, right? He sees us, he's like, eh, I've done this before. This, that's nothing. Like, you know, I, I, got, I got this. It's got to be one of the major purposes of Alma the Younger getting so much page time in the Book of Mormon 
is that we've got a guy who goes from what Mormon calls the vilest of all sinners, the worst of the worst, to a translated prophet. Kind of saying, I promise you, you fall within that spectrum, <laughs> right? If I can do that with him, I can change you. Now, Carrie, let's get back, get you back on track where you were. You were in verse 19 of Numbers yeah, 14. And I, well, and let's do eight, 18 and 19. So, because a, as important as this is, and to know that we can be forgiven, we also need to see the other side of this coin, right? So, verse 18, as, as John said, it, God is uh, long-suffering, great in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Now, that seems weird to us. Like, why would he visit the iniquity? And we get that kind of a phrase a number of places. It's in the Ten Commandments. I think this is what he's saying. I, I could be wrong, but this is how I understand it. I, I think he's saying sometimes there are consequences to sins, and sometimes others pay those consequences. I always remember this talk by Elder Holland where he says, you know, there are some people who have their phase where they're not faithful and they leave the church and then they come back and it works out well for them. But what about their children they were raising during the time they weren't faithful? Those children often pay a consequence that isn't really fully their fault. So I think God wants us to know we can be forgiven, but he's saying, okay, don't think that that means you should just run out and sin all you want. Sin brings some stuff with it. But then look how he immediately gets back to. So he's got to have that in the middle, but it starts with long suffering and forgiving iniquity. Then we get verse 19 where Moses pleads for the iniquity. And then we get verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. It's that fast. Okay, I've forgiven Israel. But, verse 21, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so he's going to talk about the glory, but then he's still going to say, but they're going to have to wander for 40 years. And I don't know if it's exactly 40 years. That's a number that just means a long time, right? But the point is, okay, I've pardoned them, but they've still demonstrated that they need a tutoring process. And that's really what it is. It's not, punishments are tutoring processes. Right, Carrie. even if they went to the promised land right now, they're not ready to be the people they need to yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. They need to become people who really do believe him. So he's going to put them through the process that will get them to be the kind of people who do believe him so they can inherit the promised land and go through everything that they will with Joshua. You're going to get a group of people who will do that because they've learned to do it. So he says, that's, that's fine. You're pardoned. We still need to do some, some learning here. And it's going to be a long learning process. Yeah, let's believe in the Lord. Let's believe he'll save us. Let's believe in the process He's going to take us through in order for us to be changed into the person I need to be. So if it if it's going to take 40 years in the wilderness for me to be changed by the Lord, I'm going to trust him and that process. Perfectly, beautifully said. Carrie, this has been fantastic so far. I'm learning a lot here about the book of Numbers, which, come on, I, I can't remember the last time I thought, <laughs> I need a little inspiration. I got to read some Numbers. <laughs> So, Carrie, where do you want to go next in our uh, family road trip here? Let's jump. We're going to skip a couple chapters just because there's so many chapters. We can't cover them all in detail. Let's go to chapter 21, which is a pretty famous chapter and has a, a lot of things we can learn from it. And we're going to get them murmuring again. If we go to, to chapter 21, verse 4, and they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. So let's do, I guess, just a little bit of itinerary here. Okay. They went from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea, so kind of straight up the Sinai region, right on that border to go into southern Canaan. And they're told, uh, now you have to wander. So they're going to go east from there into modern day, the modern day country of Jordan. 
All right. And, and the Petra area is, is where they're going to cut across into that area. And they'd like to go right through Edom, but they asked the Edomites if they can go through. And uh, these are the descendants of Esau. And they're told, no, the Edomites say, no, you can't go through. Now, there have been other groups who've said you can't go through, and God says, that's okay, we're supposed to destroy these people anyway, so let's just destroy them right now. As we, as we keep that in mind, let, this is another really important thing, and I'm sure you'll touch on this more when you get to the conquest, but we have to remember a couple of things about the, the battles that the Israelites are fighting with different people. One, Nephi makes it clear, and we get this a little bit in the Genesis uh, 12 account, uh, when God says, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years because the Canaanites aren't ripe for destruction yet. They get a long time to be told to repent. Two, remember that if someone is killed, they're just being put in the other room, like we talked about. And three, it's really, really important that the Israelites get rid of everything that leads them to idolatry. Like we said, we're in the process of trying to get Egypt out of them, and it doesn't help if you're among a whole bunch of people who are also doing idol worship. It's a little bit like if you're a recovering alcoholic, you probably don't want to go spend Friday nights in bars. It's just a bad idea. So you also, if you're a recovering idolater, you don't want to go and hang out with a bunch of people who are practicing idolatry. It's just going to be a problem for you. You have to strip yourself of all unholiness. And so that's that's what God is trying to have happen here. But with the Edomites, when they say, you can't go through here, God says, well, these are actually relatives, descendants of Abraham. <laughs> We're not destroying the descendants of Abraham. So... <laughs> you're going to have to go around. So they're going to have to go all the way around, right? They can't cut through what's called the King's Highway, which is this kind of ridge road where they can travel easily from north to south in, in the modern day country of Jordan. They got to go like all the way out into the wilderness again, past Petra, past all this stuff, and then head up north from there because the Edomites don't want them to go through. And God says, yeah, well, we're going to work with the Edomites. So that's, that's where you're going. And this is what happens when you decide you're going to have to wander instead of going straight in. So they're in some pretty tough territory, and if we go to verse 4, we've already started their journeying partway through verse 4, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. This way is hard, right? Again, this is the way they have to go since they chose not to go straight up through. <laughs> the way is hard. And the people spake against God and against Moses. There's a surprise. It's this murmuring again, and there's a part of us that says to them, why didn't you learn your lesson? Really? You're murmuring again? But here's the question I have for us. Is there anyone, and you know, if we could see all of your giant, huge audience, then we'd ask by a raise of hand, but I, I'm just going to assume I know what the answer is. Is there anyone here that doesn't have a sin that they've committed several times and they want to quit doing it and then they do it again? And the answer is no, we all do that. We all do that. And so again, we see the children of Israel doing this, don't ever ask yourself if you're doing what the children of Israel do. Ask yourself how you're doing it. <laughs> you're always doing it in some way. You just have to figure out what the way is, right? So we all have sins that we keep committing. By the way, I think this brings up another point that's that's worth thinking about. Sometimes we really beat ourselves up that we're continuing to struggle with a challenge. And And my question for you is, did you really think that you would be done with struggling before you got out of mortality? Because I don't think that's the plan. 
I think the plan is that you have some things that you struggle with all the way through mortality. And the question is, will you keep struggling, not will you get done with struggles? You're going to keep doing some things. You're going to keep doing it your, your whole life. You're going to struggle to the very end of your life to not lose your temper or to not gossip or to not covet or not have pride or whatever it is. You're going to struggle with that your whole life. And that's part of the plan. God knew you would. He just wants to see if you're going to keep struggling. Eventually, Christ will fix that. But I don't think he fixes everything in this life. And so let's not beat ourselves up over that. Yeah. Oh, Carrie, this is so important. Our our good friend Brad Wilcox gave a talk at BYU called His Grace is Sufficient, where he said, oftentimes we go through the repentance process and we think, okay, I cannot make this same mistake again. If I do, then all of that repentance was for naught. And he said, that puts you in an impossible position. He, he, he talks about teenagers do this when they commit the same sin over and over even return missionaries, married couples. This is such a discouraging thought. He said, in all of these cases, there should never be just two options, perfection or give up. He said, when learning the piano, are the only options performing at Carnegie Hall or quitting? No, growth and development take time. Learning takes time. When we understand grace, we understand that God is long-suffering, that change is a process, and that repentance is a pattern in our lives. When we understand grace, we understand that the blessings of Christ's atonement are continuous and his strength is perfect in our weakness. When we understand grace, we can, as it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, continue in patience until we are perfected. What a crucial lesson because how discouraging it might be as a teenager. John, I know you've talked about this before that you thought sinning as a teenager, if you, you made a mistake, every single sin returns and it's as if you never repented and you were terrified, right? Yeah, it's kind of the misunderstanding of, of a verse. I love airplanes and I appreciate Elder Uchtdorf for this analogy of, you know, an airliner is off course something like 90% of the time, but you just keep course correcting. If you're going from New York to London and you notice you're off course, you don't turn around and go back to New York and give up. You keep course correcting. You're off course most of the time, but you keep making tiny corrections until you touch down at Heathrow. And it works. You get there because you keep, as Carrie said, just keep struggling. Keep course correcting and you'll get to your destination. I needed to hear that more because I thought, you know, one of the steps forsake the sin and never do it again. That's my intent. I can be willing, but I'm not able. I love that the sacrament prayer says they're willing to take upon them the name of Christ. They're willing to keep his commandments, but we're not able. So we keep coming back to that sacrament table and the Lord has arranged it so that every week we can come back and course correct again. That's good. You know, and so many of the temple recommend questions have been changed to say, are you striving? Are you trying? And that's what God's asking of us. Keep course correcting. Carrie, it seems to me that God knows they're going to murmur again and again. And again, and the wilderness experience has been designed for them because the Lord knows they're going to keep committing this sin. I just want to make sure that if I, there's a teenager listening who's struggling with pornography or something, that they don't say, I just, I give up. I've tried a hundred times and I'm not winning this fight. Maybe that this is their wilderness experience and the Lord knows. So to any of our listeners who struggle with the same sin over and over and over, please don't think that somehow you're not making any progress. They're making progress through the wilderness here, right, Carrie? Even though they're committing the same sin over and over, they're learning and changing and growing, and eventually they're going to be ready for the promised land. 
That's exactly right. So let's keep in mind, we're, we're using this as an archetypal journey. So their journey is similar to our mortal probation. They're taking the long way around and we all do. Let's also be clear. We all take the long way around. Nobody gets <laughs> translated in 11 days. It was only Jesus who made an 11-day journey in 11 days. That's exactly right. He is the only one. That's well said. The rest of us are taking 40 years, but for the Israelites, the journey is designed to help them become a kind of people who rely on God and believe that he will deliver them. They don't rely on anything else because they've had to learn that nothing else works. And they've seen God deliver them enough times, and they remember it. And that's one of the real key phrases throughout all of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is to remember it. And so now they actually believe that God will do them. That's what a wilderness probation is. And so we're all in the midst of that. And we're all going to have times we have forgotten. And we mess up again and again and again. That's part of the process. As long as you're still trying, then you're actually making progress. It doesn't matter if you have licked it already. It's that, are you still getting back up and trying? Because as you said, this does eventually get them to the plains of Moab, where they're going to come across and hit the city of Jericho and go in from there. Yeah. So please don't be discouraged by what you think is a lack of of repentance on your part. I think the Lord understands you. He understands where you came from. He understands what Egypt was like. He understands it's going to take a while for this process to do its thing, for this process to to change you into who you want to be as well. I'm sure they get frustrated with themselves that having to learn the same lesson over and over. Yeah, absolutely. We need to keep in mind that this is a growing process for them and it's a growing process for us. But let's look at this specific instance in their growing process because this is a symbol that's going to get used a lot. In verse five, they're sick again of the manna and so on. Verse six, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they hit the people, and much of Israel died. And now I'm guessing the fiery has something to do with the way it feels when you get bitten. It's a burning, nasty venom that can kill you. There are plenty of snakes in that area that can kill you, asps and vipers and all sorts of stuff. So we get verse 7, they realize, oh, yep, okay, this is a bad thing that happened because God is trying to humble us. And really, let's keep in mind, God, when he punishes, he punishes with a purpose. And the purpose is to get people to come back to him and trust in him. And that's exactly what this is designed to do, to get them to realize we need God. Verse seven, therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Let's be clear, this ends up being a symbol of Christ. John talks about that. Christ being lifted up on the cross is like this serpent being lifted up on the pole. Nephi will tell us that because it was so simple, some people just plain wouldn't do it. Now, I love to make the scriptures become as real as possible. I find I can get them to apply to my life more and draw more strength and power from them if they become real. You have a podcast called The Scriptures Are Real. Is that right? That talks about this very thing. It's called The Scriptures Are Real. It is a follow him friend. It's a (laughs) follow him partner. The scriptures are real. Uh, There you go. Is this uh, something where you just kind of go through the scriptures like you've done with us today? 
Yeah, or and sometimes I have people on and I just say, tell a story about a time where the scriptures became real to you. What made them become real? How did you use them in your life? That kind of a thing. Because I think that we can apply them to ourselves more when we feel like these are real people. And Carrie, there's also a website you've told me about. What is that? What's that website? Oh, yeah. Um, Outofthedust.org where I put on all sorts of aids for understanding the Old Testament and, you know, Abrahamic Covenant and Book of Abraham, things like that. Okay. So the Scriptures Are Real podcast and outofthedust.org. We want to make sure our listeners know both about both of those. That website is dedicated towards helping people understand and have a good experience this year with the Old Testament. Great. But there was a time, I just want to share a time when this story became more real to me and it helped me understand a little bit of why, because I always thought, well, absolutely stupid uh, that they wouldn't look at the, the serpent and what, yeah. the, okay, I'm not looking, I'm, I'm going to look down at the ground. But you got to gotta walk a couple hundred yards? I mean, how hard is this, right? <laughs> how hard is this to look up? So, and it's the couple hundred yards that I realized here. So, this last summer, my ward, we did a youth conference and we went down to Hole in the Rock down in like Blanding, Utah. And while we were there, I, I this actually is a lot like the Moab Edom area. <laughs> it's a um, long journey. I've been out there too. Uh, you got to go down to Escalante or Escalante, as they yeah, call they it. Yeah, they don't put the A right. on the uh, end yeah. if you've been there. It's Escalante. Jacob and Audrey Sorensen live down there. I just got to give them a shout out. This is great. So so tell us the story. You're down going to Hole in the Rock. It's like Moab or Edom, right? This is so much like uh, if you're in that area biblically. And I thought, well, then we got to throw in some biblical stuff for, you know, the, the poor people and my the poor youth in my ward are always getting these, uh, you know, Old Testament things from their bishop. They can't avoid it. The hazard of having an Old Testament teacher for your bishop. Before we went down, I bought a whole bunch of rubber snakes. And, and then I got a big one and I painted it gold. And so when they woke up and were coming to breakfast one morning, they had to go through all these snakes that I'd thrown all around. And then I had one on a pole there, right, to go through this story and teach the lesson. But as I was doing that and trying to figure out, okay, how far out do I want to put these snakes towards their tents and stuff like that? And I started to think about the numbers of the house of Israel. And the numbers may be exaggerated, but we're given like 600,000 fighting men. And so that means that's like the men say between maybe 17 and 35 or something like that. So then you're going to estimate like that means if you want the whole population, like three to five times that or something along those lines, and you start to get into the millions of people, right? Now that may be more than it actually is. And, and the Old Testament's more concerned with creating impressions and teaching than it is about giving accurate numbers. But still, I'm guessing you're at least in the many, many hundreds of thousands. And then I started to think, well, if you have many, many hundreds of thousands of people with tents, most of them are not close to the center. I mean, some of these guys may actually have to walk like half an hour on a leg that has been bitten by a fiery serpent, and it hurts to walk on that leg to go and see that pole. That changed the story a little bit for me, right? So it's not the, I'm intentionally avoiding looking at that pole. It's the, well, it might take a little bit of effort. Do you believe enough to put in that effort even when it's painful? And again, let's go back to the symbolism of our life and our mortal probation. There are going to be times where life bites you, and it's going to take a little while to get to Christ healing you, and you're going to have to walk on some pain and through some pain to get to where Christ is healing you. But you have to believe that there is something at the end of this that makes it possible for Christ to heal you. And suddenly, when, when that happened, this story became more real for me. I can apply it to my life more. Healing is possible. But it may not be instantaneous, and that's how it works for us often in our life. I love that. And I think it would help if you were sitting in your tent saying, oh, it's not going to work, and then someone comes by and says, no, it does work. 
It happened to me. And you think, well, maybe I'll try. Yeah. Right? They call that a testimony meeting. Yeah, that has to be happening for them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, a lot of people wonder, so, okay, why a snake? That's a weird symbol, especially because we have the serpent representing Satan in the, the creation story. So it turns out that in almost every culture, there are a couple of symbols that symbolize both the good and the bad. One of them is water. Water is life-giving, and it also is destructive and drowns you, right? So water is almost always a symbol of both good and bad, and the other are serpents. And it's partially because some serpents, most, are not venomous, but some are, and the venomous ones are not good for you. Let's be clear about that, right? <laughs> so good. they can be a symbol for something that's very, very bad. Question. You know how the pharaohs, a lot of them had the cobra on their head, yeah. their headdress, whatever. Was that a symbol of don't mess with me or was it a symbol of, of power? Or So the idea is that it's a cobra that can spit. So it actually can spit fiery venom, right? And that became symbolic of the ability to destroy bad forces. So this is one of the reasons that snakes become a symbol for good. Anthropologically, we would put it this way, that you try and take that which is dangerous and tame it and harness it and make it something that works for you. And actually, you do that with snakes. Like you can milk their venom and use it for a number of good things, including becoming uh, tolerant of venom and so on. But it does become a symbol for good in that way. But there's another reason that snakes become a symbol, a good symbol, and that's because they shed their skin. Oh, the resurrection. Yeah, they become a symbol of rebirth in almost every culture because they see them leave behind the old and become new. And so they become a symbol of rebirth. And of course, that's exactly what Christ is all about, is rebirth. You can look at this in two ways, and probably both ways are correct. Satan loves to take good things and make a satanic imitation. So is it possible that he knew that serpents were going to symbolize Christ, and so he uses a serpent to be the imitation of the good symbol? He uses that serpent in the Garden of Eden. That's possible. It's also possible that Christ takes that which is bad and bitter and dangerous and turns it into that which is good which is exactly what Christ does, right? The fall is dangerous and terrible, but it's also good. And he takes it and he turns it into something wonderful. And maybe both of those are intended. I don't know the, which is the chicken and which is the egg, but I, I think it's important to recognize the symbolism that both Nephi and John certainly point to that just like they raise this brass serpent up on a pole in the wilderness, and if you look to it and lived, so if we will look to Christ, and again, look how simple that is. It's the believing Christ thing we've been talking about. If you will look to Christ, you will live. That's a fantastic symbol. John, can you do Harrison Ford? Why does it always have to be snakes? Yeah, see, because I'm more of the Harrison Ford school of snakes, you know? <laughs> I hate them. I hate yeah. snakes. Snakes. Oh, that's yeah. my pet snake, Reggie. Show a little backbone or whatever he says. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to bring up a verse because I've read this in Helaman. This is chapter 8, verse 14. Yea, did he not bear record that the Son of God should come? And as he lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, even so... Shall he be lifted up who should come? And I'm going, he's talking about Moses. Did not Moses bear record that the Son of God should come? And I'm looking for it in Numbers 21, and I'm not seeing Moses explicitly say, this is a type of the Son of God. Do you know what I'm, what I'm asking? Yeah. So is this something that was a, a plain and precious thing that we don't have now? It could be. I don't know if it was ever in this record and it was taken out or if this was an oral thing that, that, because we know that Moses taught lots of stuff orally that didn't get written down, but it was passed on. Oral traditions were a very important and real thing. 
I don't know exactly what it was but uh, and how it went missing, but clearly Moses did teach that. And you can see Jesus in John 3, like you said, Kerry, clearly sees himself as the Messiah in this story. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about, are, do you trust enough to walk through the pain? And there's other little things that we probably need to do that we think, oh, it doesn't make a difference if I do that little thing. If I read my scriptures, you know, just a little bit every day, what, what's the difference? That's a huge one, Hank, that I find so many people who have some kind of faith crisis or something like that. And for some reason, it's exactly when they stop reading the scriptures and stop praying. When really, sometimes it is as simple as this may take a long time, it may take you, I don't know, five years to get through your faith crisis. It may take you five months, five weeks. I don't know. The key is keep searching for God in the midst of that. And the way you do that is by reading your scriptures and praying. And it may seem like a, such a simple thing. You're not going to do it, but it's not. It's exactly what you need to do. Don't give up on that. That's going on the walk to see the brass serpent. It's one of many possible analogies for that, but it's a, a key one. Keep reading your scriptures. Keep praying to God through whatever kind of garbage you're going through. Keep doing that. That's one way that you walk to see the brass serpent. At the time that we're recording this, I had just finished a couple of my courses, and the, the advice I tried to leave with my wonderful students was the Doctrine of Covenants, section 50, verse 24, that which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God. And just those three words, please continue in God. And if you have a time where you feel the light's getting darker or something's happening, well, you don't disconnect from God, you continue in God. If you want more light, you got to stay connected. So continue in God, and then you'll receive more light. And you go through that faith crisis, but don't discontinue God. What's the story, Hank, of I'm sure you both know that Elder Ballard tells uh, about one of his missionaries calling and saying, I'm struggling with my faith and I have all these questions. And Elder Ballard said, bring your questions in a week, you know. But before that, have you been studying your Book of Mormon? No. Have you been praying? No. And he says, I want you to do that. And in a couple of days, the missionary calls uh, President Ballard and says, never mind, I'm good. And he's like, too bad. I worked really hard on these questions, you know. <laughs> and you're going to hear the answers. Yeah, they <laughs> talked. And at the end of the interview, President Ballard said, what have you learned? And he said, give God equal time, the missionary said. Give him more than equal time, right? <laughs> that's what I think. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. but continue in God because that's the source of light and truth. He is the source of light and truth. So you never unplug from God. Carrie, anything else in the book of Numbers you think we should see before we wrap up? Yeah, there's a story. It actually takes several chapters, but maybe we can just uh, touch on it briefly. It, and it's a little bit of a famous story where as the children of Israel are coming through, you have some of the Moabites who have heard what happened to the Egyptians. They've heard about the other people that the Israelites are fighting. They know they've got a problem on their hands here. They're scared. And they are scared. And so they want to get someone who will prophesy and put a curse on the Israelites to help them defeat the Israelites. So they go to a guy named Balaam, and it seems like he's a Midianite. Now, remember that Midian is one of the children of Abraham through his wife, Keturah. Jethro was a Midianite. So these are people who know about Jehovah, and this seems to be a prophet of Jehovah, Balaam does. Balak, uh, who's the king, the Moabite king, he says, I'll pay you a ton if you can curse these Israelites. And Balaam, being a good prophet of Jehovah, he says, well, I can only prophesy what Jehovah tells me to. I won't say more than that, and I won't say less. Whatever Jehovah tells me, 
that's what I'll do. But the interesting thing is that, that both Balak and Balaam would like for this to work out. Balak would like for the Israelites to be cursed, and, and Balaam would like to get the payment, right? <laughs> okay. So they go up on this mountain, and as they're heading up, there's an angel that's trying to stop Balaam from coming, and his donkey can see the angel, and the donkey <laughs> keeps trying to go around, and, and he's like banging his uh, leg up against the cliff wall or something like this, and uh, finally Balaam gets mad, and he's like, what is wrong with you, donkey? And the donkey talks back and says, well, I've always <laughs> been a good donkey. Have I ever caused you a problem? It's just there's someone here trying to kill you, and I'm trying to avoid that. And and then Balaam's like, oh, sorry, thanks for that, and the angel Tells him you better only do what God tells you to do, right? And so on. So Balaam doesn't prophesy against Israel. So Balak wants to try again. So they keep they go from one mountaintop, now they'll go to another one just north of there. And he gives this prophecy about how Israel's going to be fantastic. And Balak is like, This is not what I'm looking for. Yeah, this right? is the, and, you're not getting paid. And uh, then so they go to another mountain and he gives a prophecy, that messianic prophecy about uh, the scepter and the the star and so on. And he's just blessing Israel instead of cursing Israel. So I guess he doesn't get the payment and Balak's not happy with that. But I think it's a great story of a prophet who was true to what God wanted him to do no matter what. Mm. Yeah. It's like the pressure. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's some other stuff that happens after this that it's hard to know what to make of, and I think we can kind of read into it what happens, but I'm not 100% sure. It's not too long after this that the children of Israel are in the plains of Moab, and it's from there that they'll go across into the promised land. And Midianites and Moabites are coming in and inundating them with sexual things and with idolatry. And somehow, this Balaam character is involved with that and ends up being slain by the Israelites on the Lord's behalf with that. And it almost seems like Balaam is still trying to say, okay, well, I'd still like to get that payment. Maybe the way to get it is to get the Israelites to sin so much that then God will allow me to curse them. And then I can get paid. Now, I don't know. I might be reading too much into this story, but he's involved in this somehow. Probably the reason I see this is because I'm exceptionally good at this, where I, there's a part of me that wants to do things exactly how God wants, and there's a part of me that wants to follow my fallen nature and follow my favorite sins. And so if I can just find a way to rationalize it, right? If I can find a way to say, well, if, if it works this way and we do this, then that sin's actually okay. I can do both. Yeah. I'm still doing God's will, and I'm getting this handy dandy little sin in it, right? So I may be reading Balaam wrong, but I kind of think that's what's happening: is that he did follow the Lord, but the lure of the money was still there, and so he didn't stay as true as he should have, and was just trying to find a way to make it okay. I, I don't know. I, I'm probably reading too much into it, but I think there's there's a valuable lesson for us one way or the other. There is always the lure of the world always, always the lure of the world. When we're rationalizing, there's always somewhere at the back of our minds that we know we're rationalizing. And when you catch that little tickle in the back of your mind that you're (laughs) rationalizing, it's a good time to stop and say, am I doing this because of the lure of the world? Am I about to try and and make this happen in a wrong way, trying to pretend like it's right, and then in the end, I'll be slain like Balaam? We can be good at rationalizing, and in the end, it doesn't work. Carrie, I can't remember if it was you or in a different episode where we talked about the Lord inviting Moses into his presence, but he says, take the shoes off your feet, meaning I want you to come into my presence, but your sins cannot come with you. Yeah. Yeah. You're leaving the world behind, right? Because right. that's what's on your feet. 
What's on your shoes is the world. Yeah, this is a great idea here with Balaam. This, you cannot have both. You cannot have both. You've got to leave your sins behind. Even though they call to you, it's even in the children of Israel. Let's just go back to Egypt. Let's just go back to Egypt. Yep. Yep. You can't keep the summer cottage in Babylon, right? Carrie, this has just been a a fantastic day in the book of Numbers. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, who knew? You could have a great day in the book of Numbers. We'll very likely have you back this year, unless you are like uh, Indiana Jones and get stuck somewhere in the Middle East and Egypt in some great adventure. Bitten by an asp. Be careful of bad dates. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) So where do you want to leave our listeners on this great family road trip? I think that's a perfect way to think of it, right? Numbers really is the itinerary from Sinai to the promised land. So from making temple covenants to getting into the celestial kingdom. And as we said, it's this archetypal journey. It is a family road trip, right? We go on this journey, that that's who we do it with, with our family. Whether we like it or not, whether we think that's how the plan should be or not, that's how it works. We're on this family road trip, and it's not just like our my siblings, it's our covenant family as well, right? We have become a covenant family. I've made a covenant, you've made a covenant. We're in this, we're a covenant community or covenant family as well. So all of us together, our most immediate covenant group, which is our family, our larger covenant group, our ward and so on. But we're all on this road trip where we've made covenants and we're in that hard slog through the wilderness and it's harder than it should be because we've done some stupid things. But the children of Israel do get to the Jordan River, which is that veil to go into the promised land. And then they're going to get through there. That's the Joshua story, right? But as bumpy as the ride is, and as much as the wheels came off the RV and the whole, and this really did happen to me one time where I was uh, draining the potty and there were holes in the tube uh, and it made a mess, right? As much as that kind of stuff happens, we get there if we'll just keep coming back and we'll just keep trying. And so what I would hope is that everyone who is listening as they read numbers, and some of it they'll have to go into more in depth than we had time here, because again, it's this huge reading chunk. Think of it as your journey. And think of the prophet as your guide, but Christ the one who makes it possible and will deliver you and see how you can apply that to your life and your journey and the journey of your family and your covenant community. I believe that if we will read this with that in mind, that the Spirit will whisper to us about things we need to learn from this will just make us more successful in the journey and help us get through the pain of the serpents, help us quit murmuring against God's prophets, and help us get where we're trying to go by believing in Christ. The Lord, through the Holy Ghost, will let you know exactly how that happens in your life if you're asking him while you do this reading, and I really believe that. We won't say goodbye to you, Dr. Muelstein. We'll just say (laughs) see you soon. Uh, Sounds good. Yep. We want to thank Dr. Kerry Muelstein for being with us today. We want to thank you for listening. We want to thank our executive producers, Steve and Shannon Sorensen, and our sponsors, David and Verla Sorensen, And we hope all of you will join us on our next episode of Follow Him.